Hello, welcome to the Gin and Topics podcast. I'm your host, Gabriel Isaiah. And I'm your host, Noah. And today we are joined by... May I call you Bruce for this yes, podcast? Yes, please do. Okay. Please do. Um, yes, and we're here to discuss a book, um, Dandelion Wine. Uh, we, we told the listeners earlier about reading this book so they could kind of have a heads up about um, what we'll be discussing. But um, yeah, let's jump right into it. Uh, mm-hmm. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Bruce. Yeah. We're excited to have you here. And um, Tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump into the book. Okay, well... I'm retired. Yeah. I retired last June, June 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, my entire career was working as a statistician. Um, so I'm all about numbers and nerdy stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love to read, and so I was glad um, you assigned me this book because I had read it before and remembered liking it and there were a couple of things that had really stuck in my mind from years ago and it was fun to go back and revisit those things right right well Noah, if you want to start it off with a question so we can yeah well i'll just i just want to ask you guys what you did you like the book yes um i felt it was very atmospheric mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. it evoked a lot of feelings mm-hmm. um especially for me as an older person, um, the trying to remember what it was like to be 12. Yeah. And, and for context, how old are you? I'm 67. And, uh, so just remembering those things and, and I, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but especially the chapter about the new tennis shoes. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That was the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I am so eager to get into this. I have a feeling it's going to be a longer episode. But Gabe, let's uh, let's get your take. What do you think of this book? How'd you? I mean, I completely like agree with with Bruce. It was it was very it very much assigned the reader to feel certain emotions, and it was um, it was fun, you know, looking back on what summer was like at that time in my life and. Um, what, four years ago, six years ago. <laughs> no, I mean, exactly. not too much long ago, but you know, it was, it was still, you know, as I didn't have the best memory as a kid, so you know, it's kind of just I'm still, it's still a struggle to try and remember those memories. But there was a lot of things I could relate to in the book, um, even though it was a specific situation. You know, who lived with who and at what time, mm-hmm. I could still relate to a lot of the adventures that. Um, Douglas had, who is the main character. Yeah. And just in case we didn't mention it already, this book was written by Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. um, also known for Fahrenheit 451, um, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yep. And were you aware that <clears throat> this was not written as a book? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's a lot of his novels, is they were written as novellas and short stories, and they ended up being expounded upon later. Yeah. Yeah, because um, I believe Fahrenheit 451 started as a short story called Pleasure to Burn. Mm-hmm. And no, the fireman. Oh, the fireman. Yeah, and that's right. he said that was his only science fiction book. Fahrenheit 451. Yep. Everything else he said was fantasy. Gotcha. Even mm. though he's often he's often called considered science fiction, science fiction but yeah, yeah. I, when I think science fiction, I think more Isaac Asimov. Right. And I can feel a, a big difference in the reading of the two authors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would I would definitely attribute fantasy to him more than science fiction. Yeah. Um, and did you ever see 
any of his TV show? No, I've I've been very curious to watch it though, because for me personally, Ray Bradbury is my favorite author. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah, because he would introduce each episode, and I think he wrote every episode. He oh, did wow. a lot of screenplay writing. Yeah, I know. I know he TV did a scripts. screenplay version of um, Moby Dick. He helped with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have his his biographical writings in making the screenplay for Moby Dick. Um, yeah, but I personally love the book. Um, it's probably in my top 10 books. Um, I've read it. This is my sixth time reading it. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm in love with this book. I'm going to assign this to my kids, you know, like this is, this is just, unfortunately, whenever I read it, I kind of get a longing feeling of like, I feel like I've missed out, you know, on certain things. A simpler time, you know, less. Um, I mean, like we we grew up locking our doors. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we grew up. You had to be in before dark. You know, you weren't really allowed out unsupervised because we grew up in downtown St. Paul. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I whenever I read this book, it's like this is the childhood I wish for yeah. my children, <clears throat> and you know what I wish I could have had. Now you said you'd assign it to your kids. Wouldn't you? W- do you think this is necessarily for kids to read? Um, like, do you think the target audience is kids? I wouldn't say it's, for, like, target audience for kids, but I read it the first time when I was, like, 11 or 12, around Douglas, the main character's age, and it okay. still stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure that, you know, 20 years from now when you read it again, mm-hmm. you'll take away different things from it than yeah. what you take away now. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember when I first read it, uh, but some several years ago, I read it for the second time, and all I could remember were two scenes from it uh, before. And this time when I read it, I tried to be more aware of what was going on. And then today, I kind of went through and skimmed through all the chapters again and noticed something that I think we'll talk about later uh, that I thought to me was really interesting. Probably maybe you've seen this already, but uh, we'll talk about that later. But I like the atmosphere that he read. And when he talked about, you know, growing up in simpler times, the part in the book where he was late and coming home and his mother and brother went out and yelled for him (laughs) by the ravine I remember growing up, um, I grew up in Hastings, and we were right in town, and one of my best friends lived like one block away. You could cut through people's yards and (laughs) get to his house. And When he and I would be out playing, there were some other neighborhood kids that would occasionally play with with us. But we'd period, every once in a while in the evening, we'd hear this whistle, and this one family, they would always take out like a referee type whistle or something like that and Mm -hmm. blow it. And that was a signal for all the kids to come home for dinner or just come home because it was late. Mm -hmm. And we'd hear that whistle and we go, Oh, the Hessians have to go home again. (laughs) You know, it's time for supper or something like that. So that was kind of a familiar scene for me, uh, for the, the, you know, the mothers calling for their kids, uh, tell them to come home. 
I partic- the what I particularly liked about that scene in the book was how it's all from Tom's perspective, the little brother. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And how he sees this just absolute fear in his mom's eyes and voice as they're calling for him. Mm-hmm. And then when Douglas appears, it's just like she hides all that and she's angry and you know, you're she guarantees him a spanking when they get home. Yeah. And I just I think that's funny cuz as a parent, for me it's like, yeah, you're really concerned or you're really worried sometimes. But you can't show it, or or you you have to come in more, um, I don't know, more authoritative than you might feel. Yeah. Um, and I just I thought that was a really good picture of like, even as an adult, sometimes you feel like a child, and you just feel like, I don't know, just the, the realization when you're an adult that no one's coming and it's up to you, <laughs> is sometimes an overwhelming <laughs> and concerning thought. <laughs> when Cheryl and I were first married. Um, she pulled a prank on me. When I was growing up, we lived in an old house and tended to get a lot of bats in the house. Mm. And so I grew up kind of afraid of bats. And she, early in our marriage, you know, within the, in, in the first year, she comes in and she's trembling. She says, there's a bat in our bathroom. You know, and my first, my first thought was, I'm calling my mom and dad. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And then I thought, nope, I'm married, I'm a man, yeah. I have to go deal with it. So I cautiously went into the bathroom and peeked around the door, and then I heard her snickering behind me that it was just a joke. It was a prank. <laughs> yeah, but that idea of, you know, going from being a child to being a, an adult, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that was, I just remember that very distinctly as that was my first thought. I'm calling mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I can we can kind of move into the, like what do you guys think the prevailing theme of the book was then due to that i mean just this conversation we're having yeah the like the as thesis far as a theme or thesis um i felt it was more the idea of painting a picture of one summer in the life of this 12 year old and there were certainly different, unique scenes throughout the book. Um, In fact, I was talking with uh, Tom last night, and this isn't really a theme, but threads that ran through the stories, Tom said he thought there were a lot of machines in the story. Mm -hmm. You know, the time machine, the... Mm -hmm happiness machine, the green machine, um, you know, and you could broaden that out to even newer technology, you know, where the uh, Bill Forrester introduced the grass that didn't have to grow and, Mm -hmm. you know, new things and they all kind of, these machines all kind of failed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then as I was looking through the story again today, I saw a whole lot of endings in the story. Yeah. You know, the the ending of the green machine, the ending of the happiness machine, the ending of Colonel Freelay, mm-hmm. the ending of his calls to Mexico, mm-hmm. the ending of the arcade, the ending of the tarot witch, mm-hmm. um, even the ending of Helen Loomis mm-hmm. and the ending of the lonely guy. Yep. And even the ending of summer, mm-hmm. you know, there was just a lot of 
endings in the book, the ending of Great Grandma. Yeah. You know, and I thought that was that was something I hadn't noticed until I really skimmed through and just remembered, you know, each of the chapters. And mm-hmm. uh, I yeah, don't, I, I don't know if really he good. meant anything like that, but yeah. Before before we move any forward, I'm gonna I'm gonna just read the the inside flap of the book mm-hmm. um, for our audience if you have not read this book. It's called Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury. Twelve-year-old Douglas Spaulding knows Greentown, Illinois, is at as vast and deep as the whole wide world that lies beyond the city limits. It is a pair of brand new tennis shoes, the first harvest of dandelions, for grandfather's renowned intoxicant. The distant clang of the trolley's bell on a hazy afternoon. It is a yearster year, and tomorrow blended into an unforgettable always. But as young Douglas is about to discover, summer can be more than the repetition of established rituals whose mystical power holds time at bay. It can be a best friend moving away, a human time machine who can transport you back to the Civil War, or a sideshow automation able to glimpse the bittersweet future. Um, well, thanks, Noah. Um, Bruce, I just wanted to kind of go off what you said, how there's a lot of endings in the book. Do you think besides that kind of in, um, kind of adversely, do you think there's also a lot of beginnings as well? Cause like it talks about the beginning of summer. It talks about the beginning of Douglas knowing he's alive mm-hmm. it talks about um but then his realization that someday he'll die yeah that's a true true it's a great part <laughs> but it's also the beginning of his realization that yeah. he will have an end yeah 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 i mean for an ending there has to be a beginning right too but that was just something that kind of jumped out at me as i was gotcha you know breezing through it again all these different things that ending even the ending of that friendship right you know with john huff when he moved away Mm -hmm. and and the way he expressed his sorrow of his friend moving away was to get angry right you know not really just being sad but Mm -hmm. expressing it as anger which i think seems pretty realistic for a child of that age you know to not necessarily know how to express grief but have it come out as anger Right. Yeah. I think from my perspective, the over, like the prevailing theme of the book was um, kind of maybe growing up is the best way to say it. Because it was kind of a transition, you know, he'd had summers before. He knew like the dandelion wine could like be a bottle of that summer or that year. But it was such a significant year for him because when they were picking the grapes at the beginning of the book, they were like, he he knew something was coming, something, he felt it, you know, approaching or whatever, whatever it was, and you thought like, oh, this is maybe danger or something, but he realized he was alive. You know, mm-hmm. it was kind of a... a, a it knocked him over. Yep, <laughs> yeah, and he was just, he was, he was happy, and then he was also like, what do I do with this feeling, but... Um, I think there is also a, a kind of a specific moment, at least for me, during the summers where I was like, you know, this is life, you know, where you're a kid, you're, you know, just so taken aback by life and stuff and you're trying to enjoy it, the sunshine, running around, playing with friends. 
but I think for, even for me, there was a, there was a summer where I was just like, I'm, I'm living, I'm alive, you know? And it's kind of that, that idea that we all have at some point is that we're actually living life. And you start to think of yourself as a deep philosophical person. And that's what I loved about the book is because Ray Bradbury tries to capture the mind of a child. Um, and see through their perspective, at least when talking about Douglas, because he started writing things down and these realizations, he's like, young people and old people are two different species, <laughs> yep. which we see, we read that and we're like, that's ridiculous. Right. Obviously, we know that's not true. But he was like, <clears throat> I just came up with this brilliant idea. We're not the same species as old mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Mrs. Bentley, where the yep. girls tell her, right. you were never young. You've always right. been 72 right. years old. And right. Right, I thought that was that was an interesting story, too, within the book, mm -hmm. um, and I don't have any specific remembrance of you know one day realizing hey I'm alive, mm -hmm. but I do remember having a thought probably until I don't know in my thirties or forties where I felt like <clears throat> I've only been alive the last. 10 years mm -hmm. or the last five years, you know, and only now as I'm older, can I look back, you know, and as you get older, you tend to look back anyway and remember all these different things. Right. You know, I can't, maybe can't remember what I did last week, but I remember, <laughs> you know, incidents from childhood or being younger. Yeah. yeah. But I couldn't say exactly when. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I think for me, mine's mine's pretty much an amalgamation of what you guys have said. It's life and death. Mm -hmm. Is I think you get so much life, but you also have the the raw, you know, bitter cup mixed in there of of there is death in all of it. Mm -hmm. And I think Ray Bradbury does a flawless work of first of all the denial phase, which Douglas goes through to the the real, you know, realizing phase. And then there's the struggle with that. And then the understanding and acceptance, acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I think he, I mean that it's almost like put into three parts and in, in just how I read it, because eventually he is saved. He's, he's saved from the idea of death being the worst thing in the world at the end. Mm -hmm. And that he, he gets obsessed with it and his, terrified of it and it almost ruins his summer um and you know we talked about mrs bentley she's in like chapter 15 i have it written down um where the two young girls jane and i forget the other girl's name mm -hmm. they pretty much go over and terrorize this old lady mm -hmm. who would love to tell them stories about when she was younger and, and wanted to show them trinkets from her younger days and they refuse to believe it they refuse to believe that she was younger and while I never thought these exact thoughts as a kid, like, yeah, we're a different race than old people, you always thought it sub, you know, unconsciously it filtered through everything you did. Like, yeah, they're different. You don't understand. And now that I'm, I guess I can't say I'm old. I'm, I'm a young adult. <laughs> I'm 22 years old, but I look, I look back at that and I go, man, what I do to be a kid again. I mean, and, and especially in. I would love to have lived this childhood because 
things aren't as safe anymore and and there's a lot more lonely ones wandering around our ravines these mm-hmm. days and i i think this book is a perfect picture of western america's summers mm-hmm. and what childhood should be like i mean this is a dream childhood written written out for us as a, as an epic that's why it's a fantasy yeah <laughs> but but in interviews with Ray Bradbury, he's often talked about him comparing himself to Douglas and that a lot of this was his experience. Sure. So, because okay. Greentown and Douglas come up in multiple other books. That's, um, that was the little bit that I gleaned from reading a little bit about Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. um, that that was a common setting yep. for some of his books. Because doesn't he set... Something Wicked This Way Comes. In Greentown. In Greentown, yeah. Yep. And then and I, I remember reading that one, and I and I think I read The Illustrated Man, but both of them were quite some time ago, and I don't yeah. remember a whole lot. And The Illustrated Man is a collection of sh- just short stories. Right, yeah. right. Um, so the, the two scenes that I had remembered from the first reading of the book... On this reading, really only one of them hit me hard again. In fact, I had to look to figure out what was the other scene because the other scene for me, the way I remembered it was Grandma making cookies. But then when I read it this time, I realized it was Grandma's messy kitchen Mm -hmm. that once it got cleaned up, it was like she couldn't figure out how to cook anymore. (laughs) You know, and that one... That whole story I thought was kind of funny because of how they kicked Aunt Rose out. Yeah. said, here's your suitcase, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> that was yeah. kind of funny. But the the one that always resonated with me was the uh, the new sneakers. Tell us, tell us more about that. Um, reading it this time, I actually got really teary-eyed mm-hmm. because I remembered getting new sneakers as a kid. I didn't get new ones every summer, Mm. but I remembered getting new sneakers and I remembered that feeling of, oh man, now I can run fast and I can jump high, which I never could do, (laughs) (laughs) even as a kid. But there was something about, and he described it so well, you know, where he talked and and maybe later I'd like to read a little passage out of that chapter. But um, when I was a kid, the only three kinds of sneakers that I knew about were Keds, which in my memory were, they were like the cheap ones. Mm-hmm. I didn't want them. Mm-hmm. But Red Ball Jets, they were the ones I wanted. Or PF Flyers mm. uh, was the other one. And you can look up old commercials from those three brands on YouTube and see these just you know corny goofy almost false advertising <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> uh you know in 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 one of the commercials i forget which brand it was they asked you know why did you want to buy this brand of sneakers because i wanted to win more i wanted mm-hmm. to run faster i wanted to jump higher you yeah. know yeah and that was exactly what he brought out well if, um, if you have that scene and you want to read it go ahead <clears throat> see if i can see it in the dark here I left my marker in there. Um, So they're coming home from the movie, Mm -hmm. and they walk by that store, and Douglas backs up 
and looks. Um, and his father says, suppose you tell me why you need a new pair of sneakers. Can you do that? Well, you know, and then it goes into narration. It was because they felt the way it feels every summer when you take off your shoes for the first time and run in the grass. They felt like it feels sticking your feet out of the hot covers in wintertime to let the cold wind from the open window blow on them suddenly, and then you let them stay out a long time until you put them back in under the covers again to feel them like packed snow. The tennis shoes felt like it always feels the first time every year wading in the slow waters of the creek and seeing your feet below half an inch further downstream with refraction than the, re than the real part of you above water. Dad, said Douglas, it's hard to explain. Somehow the people who made tennis shoes knew what boys needed and wanted. They put marshmallows and coiled springs in the soles and they wove the rest out of grasses bleached and fired in the wilderness. Somewhere deep in the soft loam of the shoes, the thin, hard sinews of the buck deer were hidden. The people that made the shoes must have watched a lot of winds blow the trees and a lot of rivers going down to the lakes. Whatever it was, it was in the shoes and it was summer. Mm. You know, and I just liked all that description that was there and then how he, you know, got the shoes by basically talking the guy at the shoe store to give him, you know, the shoes for the money he had and then he would work for him and mm -hmm. do all these chores. And, and while I didn't have that experience, I just remembered what it was like to have those new, uh, new tennis shoes is what we called them, you know, when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I went back and now we call them fresh kicks. Yeah. Well, at, at, at one time, the earliest uh, type of Converse basketball shoes were called Chucks. Yep. Um, yep, Chuck but Taylors. I, yeah, but I went back and read about the history of, you know, the Keds company and the PF Flyers and the Red Ball Jets just to get a feel for, you know, what that was, what was going on there. But that was, to me... Uh, the most emotionally moving chapter because of the memories it brought back. Yeah. For me, when I was a kid, I always wanted the impractical sneakers, the ones that lit up so I could look cool while running in the dark. And then the ones with the wheel on the bottom Oh yeah. called like the, the Healy shoes, but they were, they're really chunky and just ugly looking. The only cool thing about them was the wheel underneath that you could kick your soles up and, you know, just coast down a sidewalk. Um, so that, that was, that was mine. But I, I, I do resonate with that, with that excerpt of the book. Um, but even to this day, I, I, I like shoes a lot, you know, and I, I probably buy too many of them, but, yeah. uh, for my own good, but it's more for comfort now and not for like looks or whatever. Yeah. I, I don't buy athletic shoes very often, just, you mm -hmm. know, once every couple of years when they wear out. And I tend to gravitate toward the real brightly colored ones. Yeah. But yeah. then I have to go, well, you know. What can I wear with this? I'm a little, well, no, I, I more think, yeah, that looks kind of goofy on an old guy, you know. <laughs> what, what can I find that I like the look of and that it wouldn't be too out of place for an old guy to wear? Would you say out of this, the entire book, this is what resonated the most with you or just what was the most emotional for you? 
just the most emotional. Gotcha. I mean, it, there were so many of the stories that I really liked. You know, I liked the fact that the kids appreciated hearing the stories from Colonel Freely. Yeah. Um, and I loved the suspense of the chapter with the three women going to the movie theater. Oh, I love that chapter. I, in fact, I, I had Cheryl read it, just uh -huh. that chapter. Um, What'd she think? She liked it. Yeah. I, because when I was reading the book, I thought, Is, wasn't, doesn't somebody die? Mm -hmm. You know, and but I wasn't sure. I kept thinking, well, maybe I'm mixing it up with something wicked this way comes. And then I came to that chapter. And then when I got to the last line of that chapter, it was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, but then I couldn't remember what happened next. And so it was fun to read the next chapter. And the fact that the kids didn't like the idea of the lonely man getting killed because they didn't think he looked like a proper lonely man. Mm -hmm. yep. You know, they wanted him to look a lot scarier and, you know, more of what they were picturing in their mind was the lonely man than what he actually was. Right, right. You know, and yet that too is realistic because today, you know, I mean, even now there's not really a typical look for a, a serial killer or a serial yeah. killer. Yeah. But I mean, I think as a kid you can really you can really imagine some scary stuff like when you're in oh, yeah. bed and it's dark you yeah. think about what's under your bed what's in your closet and you can you've heard stories of the boogeyman or yeah. or whatever and uh some of these are to keep kids in their bed stories that parents tell but i feel um, like as a kid you have a pure you have a pure view of good and evil yeah. And so when you think good, you think normal looking, you think, mm -hmm. you know, like happy, you you have a non, an unbiased view of what you think good and evil should look like. And I think, I think you, as children, they're viewing what the inside of people looks like and putting it on the outside. Like, yeah, the lonely man was a really evil man. <laughs> he didn't look it. Mm -hmm. But as a child, when you think evil, when you think gross, when you think nasty, you think in terms of visual. Yep. You don't think about the heart. Yep. And I think that's, I mean, that it's such a good example of what children really perceive, how they perceive the world and how it's almost shocking. And it almost feels like a breaking of your trust when you realize that evil can be hid behind some pretty attractive features. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'd agree. Well, I, I, when reading this book, I really, I really liked how it was written too, because it's not necessarily chapters, like it. Well, in the book, in the version I read, the way it was printed, they weren't numbered or anything. You could see where they ended and started, but they weren't numbered. Yeah, you, um, and you could kind of tell which were maybe previous short stories and, and where the weaving together took yeah. place. Yeah. You know, the, the real short little chapters. The one I read, too, it didn't have any chapter numbers. Gotcha. Either. Yeah. And what I really liked about that, it was kind of written as a, it was kind of, you're kind of supposed to read it as almost a diary is written. Mm -hmm. in a sense, like certain days. And it just cuts. It just instantly moves to the next thing. But it always seems to start off with 
the the morning was like this or the day was like this or, the, or the night writing. was like this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He set a really good atmosphere for all the different scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Have you ever read any books by H.P. Lovecraft? Yes. Yes. Yeah. He was a very atmospheric writer, mm-hmm. you know, never got real specific of what the monster looked like, but always gave you this feeling of I don't want what to you know felt it. while looking at the yeah, monster. Yeah. 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 And so this book, I would say, is a little bit similar in that it creates this atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The other thing this book reminded me of is that movie, uh, My Dog Skip. Yeah, because you know, that was about a kid's summer and mm-hmm. and all these little scenes that took place in that summer. Even though you know the events were not at all the same, mm-hmm. uh, it was a similar kind of a similar time period. That one I think was more the what forties probably. Uh, my dog skipped because the one guy went off to war, but. Um, it had the same kind of atmosphere. Yeah, I thought yeah. as this one did. Yeah, yeah it was. I, I really liked the way it was all laid out. Like, not necessarily big chapters, but kind of a book that you could almost read. Like, you know, after work, just mm-hmm. a little, just a little snippet, and then go about your day and kind of think about that day that was described in the book. Yeah, it was uh, a bunch of vignettes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I yeah I think it's very easy to read. It's just it it's just very easy on your eyes, on your mind, um, and you feel like you're spending a summer in Greentown. Yep. Yep. Um, well, something I really want to talk about with you guys is the happiness machine, because I think mm-hmm. that took up a lot of. I feel like it took up a lot of time, um, and I think there's a reason behind that. But I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the happiness machine. Bruce, do you want to just tell us what the happiness machine is first? And it's, um, yeah, the, this guy, Lewis, is that his name? It's Leo, right? Leo. Yeah. Leo. Leo Offman. Yeah. Um, wanted to build this happiness machine and didn't, was it one of the kids that gave him that idea or was it one of the, yeah, I think they were all in a bunch of, they were all gathered by the cigar shop, all the men of the town and they were talking politics and world issues as all, as we still tend to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Leo or someone else said, oh, you got to just stop talking about all that rot. And someone else said, well, until you can figure out a, a, you know, a solution to all these issues, they will continue to talk about it. I think one of the kids was like. They challenged him. Challenged him. You should invent a happiness machine. Yeah. And Leo is an inventor. Yep. Yep. And he had all these things that he wanted to put in there. And he became so obsessed with it you kind of got the impression that he was neglecting his family trying to build this happiness machine and because when he first comes home to tell his wife it's Lana or something like that the idea of the happiness machine it paints this picture when he walks through his door his he's got a bunch of kids and they're all having a blast in the house dinner is on the stove you know his wife is greeting him at the door with a kiss and a smile and you, it's almost this picturesque family view. Yep. And he says, I'm going to invent a happiness machine. And she looks up and she says, something's wrong. And then that chapter ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, I was like, there's a beginning of the problem right yeah. there. Yep. Yeah, because he didn't recognize his own happiness that right. 
he was living mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was interesting when he finally got it done and she went inside and she said, this is a sadness machine mm-hmm. because it made you, it transported you to places that you could probably never go and therefore you felt more sad when you got out because you knew you could never experience it in reality. Yeah. And then I think one of his kids got to try it too and they cried and his wife cried and then he doesn't believe it so he's going to go try it but he doesn't even get to try this thing out because it burns down. Yeah. (laughs) With his garage. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was... That part was... It was kind of sad just how he looked past his own happiness like you were saying Bruce Mm -hmm. um and his wife you know they had a fight Mm -hmm. she threatened to leave and take the kids yep and and she packed her bags and stuff and was just ready to walk out the door um yeah that was kind of a parable yeah Mm -hmm. yep and it it, yeah that's kind of what I was thinking about thankfully it had a happy ending yeah we figured it out right (laughs) right but yeah it showed you all the places it showed you all the things basically that you couldn't have Mm-hmm. or wouldn't normally have. But the thing is, humans are never, we never seem to be content. You know, when it's when it's summer, we're like, oh, it's way too hot outside. But when it's winter, we're like, oh, it's way too cold outside. I just wish mm-hmm. it was summer, or I just wish it was winter yep. so I could be cool or warm or whatever. But when we look at all these things in front of us, you know, things that we can't have, well, do we really need them, you know, yeah. when we have... When we have what we have, and we just got to take a minute to count our blessings like Tom was doing in the book. As yeah. Well. Yeah. Too many people confuse happiness with joy. Yeah. You know, they think if they get the right stuff, you know, go to the right places, yep. eat the right food, yep, they'll be happy. I think people who are very, um, fervent collectors of things can sometimes get wrapped up in that kind of mentality, that accumulating Mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, Collecting can be fun, but it can also be um, I don't know what the word is I want to use, kind of overwhelming. Yeah, It can almost consume you yeah there we go consuming yep for sure i definitely i definitely understand what you're saying because you know when you collect something from one place you're like well i need to go to this place to get something from there Mm -hmm. and bring it back and just have it in a pile and um that that brings up one of my uh what i felt was the most intriguing part of the book was when they were talking to the old lady about oh you were never young mrs bentley yep mrs bentley and i know we talked about it earlier but the conversation she had the conversation she had with her husband like oh what would her husband say if she was alive um and i'll just find that quick and read a little bit of it um but it it's it made me think because it brought up a interesting idea um let me just find it here trying to figure out where to start um uh 
I don't feel any different from when I was your age, said the old lady. Our age? Yes, once I was a pretty little girl, girl just like you, Jane, and you, Alice. They did not speak. What's the matter? Nothing. Jane got up. Oh, you don't have to go so soon, I hope. You haven't finished eating. Is something the matter? My mother always says it isn't nice to fib, said Jane. Of course it isn't. It's very bad, agreed Mrs. Bentley. And not to listen to fibs. Who is fibbing you, Jane? Jane looked at her and then glanced nervously away. You were. And they talk about how she was lying. She was never our age. But then she goes on to have a conversation with her, her well, not a conversation, but kind of a what if, if her husband was still alive. Um, and she has a conversation like, oh, all this stuff you're looking back on when you were a kid, you know, the, the comb you had or the picture you had of you while you were younger, they're not, they were you when you were that age. They're not you now. Mm-hmm. And uh, after having this conversation, she said, you know, I'm going to get rid of all this stuff. This stuff, these material things don't define who I am. She lay awake for many hours in the night among her trunks and trinkets. She glanced over at the neat stacks of materials and toys and opera plumes and said aloud, does it really belong to me? And it kind of goes into, you know, we're our age right now. But it also says, like, you're always the age that you are. And it's never, you can't look back and be like, oh, when I was... Um, I'm 16 and I have this and that proves that I'm 16. It's kind of like you got to accept where you are in life and kind of just be in the moment because if you're not and you're always looking to the past and what you had in the past, it's nice to have memories. Mm -hmm. Of course it is, you know, where you've been and what you've done. But if you're holding too close and you're holding too tightly to that stuff, you start to live in the past and you can't do that. Yep, yep. That would be a bad thing. I <clears throat> I do have a distinct memory of feeling like I was still in like I was still college age. Mm-hmm. Even you know, I probably wasn't until I turned forty or something that I finally started to realize, hey, you're not in college anymore. Right. Right. You know. <clears throat> and. Uh, and yet now, you know, being retired, I just love it so much. <laughs> right. Yep. And fair enough. Yeah, it seems nice. Uh, it's it's as good as I had hoped it would be. That's good. You know, because I don't feel bored. I often feel like I don't have enough time to do all the stuff. Right. You know that I want to do. So. Yeah, and th- I mean. I'm super happy to hear that because usually what I hear when people retire is, oh, I just miss work. Well, find a hobby, you know, read more. I will never relate to that statement. Right. I don't think I will either. But I think I'm going to be a Bruce in retirement. I'm <laughs> I'm 22 and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah. But see, there's, there's these people who come so, you know, entranced, not entranced, but kind of hypnotized by being in the work world and stuff and yes it's necessary for life and it Mm -hmm. it helps in a large part of your life and growth and having family and whatnot but you know there's a there's a time and a place for everything and you know there's a time to stop working right and just enjoy life Uh, maybe look back at memories and 
pick up a hobby and yeah so i'm looking forward to retirement but i'm way far away from that and i loved my job and i loved Mm -hmm. the people that i worked with and my job brought a lot of satisfaction to me you know i liked what i was doing but i and i think for me the whole lockdown kind of helped me make that transition because i didn't go from you know uh 35 minute commute each way every day and seeing all my coworkers every day mm-hmm. to suddenly nothing. Right. Instead, right. I was working at my dining room table for 15 months. Right. You know, <clears throat> and only contact with my coworkers was over, you know, remote meetings and occasionally being in the office. And so I think that helped make that transition from okay, today I sit at the dining room table all day. Tomorrow I can do whatever I want. Exactly. There's, yeah. a, there's very much freedom <clears throat> in the idea of retirement. So yeah. yeah, that's fun to hear. So now I can read books like Dandelion Wine. Exactly, and be on podcasts of yeah. people who are yeah. very much not retired. <laughs> but um, Noah, did you have a favorite part of the book? Well, I actually have a quote that I saved, or a quotation, I'm sorry. A quotation that I saved. Um, What's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> I had a I had a rhetoric teacher in mm-hmm. in high school that was very very stern about the difference between a quote and a quotation. Oh, and what is the difference? I don't fully remember because <laughs> I didn't give it much thought. A quote was. Or was a quote something that someone said and a quotation is like something that's written? Yes, yes. So I have a quotation okay. from this okay. book. Um, I can quote you on that, Gabe? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, referring exactly to what you guys are talking about in this whole just, you know, age thing and being happy where you are. Mm-hmm. It won't work, Mr. Bentley continued, sipping his tea. No matter how hard you try to be what you once were, you can only be what you are here and now. Time hypnotizes. When you are nine, you think you've always been nine years old, and you always will be. When you're 30, it seems you've always been balanced there on that bright rim of a middle life. And then when you turn 70, you are always and forever 70. You are in the present. You are trapped in a young now or an old now, but there is no other now to be seen. And I think I, I had just written that down to share at some point in the podcast and you guys yeah. pretty much, I mean, brought it out. That's exactly what you guys are talking about is just this being satisfied in the moment and not looking back and not sure there's there's it's OK to look forward, but not being obsessed with what's tomorrow because you're going to get to tomorrow and wish you were in yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yep, <clears throat> People put too much emphasis on in their age moving to the next decade you know oh I'm 30 oh I'm 40 Mm -hmm. and for me the only traumatic if you can call it even traumatic uh, (laughs) birthday was when I turned 20 really because I thought I'm not a teenager anymore. And that was traumatic for you. 
Yeah, that was the only one that bothered me. And it, was, it wasn't like, you know, I was sad for months or anything. Uh -huh. But I just remember that thought of, I'm not a teenager anymore. But hmm. 30, 40, 50, 60, you know, it's just another year. Yep. You know? Yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to turning 20 myself. <laughs> I guess I was just so busy turning 20 that I just did, <laughs> did not have, have time? time to go, oh, yeah, I'm 20 now. Right. Because yeah. uh, yeah. I, was, I was a husband and father by the time I turned 20, so it was just like, yeah, I mean, it's probably best I'm not a teenager anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but you asked Gabe what my favorite part of the book was. And yes. for me, what I wrote down here is um, a conversation that goes on between Tom and Douglas. And I guarantee you guys will remember this. Um, but I mean, growing up, pretty much my best friend has always been my brother. Um, and there's there's different phases to that in life. Um, you know, like, well, I'll, ju I'll just read it. Tom said Douglas. Just promise me one thing, okay? It's a promise. What? You may be my brother, and I maybe hate you sometimes, but stick around, all right? You mean you'll let me follow you and the older guys when you go on hikes? Well, sure, even that. What I mean is, don't go away, huh? Don't let any cars run over you or fall off a cliff. I should say not. What do you think I am, anyway? Because if worse comes to worst, and both of us are real old, say 40, or 45 someday. We can own a gold mine out west and sit there smoking corn silk and growing beards. Growing beards? Boy. Like I say, you stick around and don't let nothing happen. You can depend on me, said Tom. It's not you I worry about, said Douglas. It's the, it's the way God's run, God runs the world. Tom thought about this for a moment. He's all right, Doug, said Tom. He tries. I, I remember reading that page again today. Uh -huh. uh, and yet that's one of the pages, I think, that he used to weave together the different stories. Mm -hmm. And I think it shows his skill as a writer to make that so memorable, even yeah. though it's just, you know, part of the... It's a transition. Part of the tr the thread of weaving all these other stories together. Mm -hmm. Yep. And for me, when I read that, that's where I almost had the teary-eyed, is like, I remember when my brother was young enough where it was like, he didn't hang out with me and my friends. And then I remember that weird transition phase of, you know, him starting to move into my friend group and become a part of it. And, and now we're all just, you know, I mean, we're all old enough where no one cares anymore. Yep. But I remember almost a difficult transition of like, I love my brother, but like, I don't know if I want him here to the point where then I was like, I really want my brother here. Mm -hmm. Um, and now it's, it's not the, it's not the group if my brother's not there. And I think, I just think it was, I don't know. It was just such a relatable moment of like, I love my brother, even though I just want to beat the crap out of him sometimes. Mm -hmm. And just, I loved Tom and Douglas's, relationship yep of just their you know they'll they'll beat the crap out of each other one moment and then be helping each other beat the crap out of someone else the next moment you know mm -hmm. and enjoying all these wonderful things about summer and douglas you know teaching tom different things and just i remember you know teaching gabe different things and and you know wanting gabe to experience different things with me um and just i don't know i related to that as an older brother and as a brother um, you know, 
even at that young age, you, you don't know how to say it. Obviously, Douglas didn't know mm-hmm. how to say it, but that you love them and care about them, but in this, like, manly, riffing, kind of unemotional <laughs> way, and just how even kids have those feelings that they don't know how to express. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely remember that transition phase, and it was awkward because... As a younger brother, you always want to be where where your older brother is, you know, like, oh, that's so cool. I want to do that with you. Mm. Um, but then I'm sure as an older brother, you're like, well, he's my younger brother. So, you know, maybe if I had an older brother, I could look up to and do things with. That'd be fun. But I definitely understood that eh, my brother doesn't want me everywhere, um, even though he loves me and watches out for me. There is still kind of boundaries at certain ages or whatever but it was very awkward because it was kind of like oh yeah you can be here for this event that lasts a few hours but for the sleepover ooh, maybe next time (laughs) so yeah but now you know we're all super good friends and it's nice to still have a friend group from your childhood this far along in life Mm -hmm. yeah bruce you talked about um i forget the boy's name but when douglas gets mad Oh yeah, John Huff. John Huff is his leaving. friend. I just I didn't really grow up in a neighborhood atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I mean, our neighborhood was so dangerous we weren't really allowed outside. Um, did you ever have an experience like that? Not of, <clears throat> not quite like that. Um, we moved from a real small town in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, to Hastings, which was a much bigger town. And <clears throat> let's see, we we moved into Hastings and lived there for a short time, then moved back to where we had been for maybe a year and a half or two years, and then moved back again mm-hmm. to Hastings. And in that short time back, I... Uh, met a new kid who was or new to our school and he became one of my best friends and then when I moved to Hastings you know I wasn't you know I had moved away from him and yet I could go and spend a week or two at his place in the summer so I still had contact with him but I definitely had two different best friends in Hastings both of whom lived one, the furthest one away lived a block away. The other one lived like three houses away. Mm-hmm. And one was my age and the other was two years younger than me. And those two friends were not friends. Mm-hmm. They were both, I had different sets of interests that I would do with each one. And one of them, we started a band together and, you know, played music and the other one we played baseball and frisbee and went bike riding you still talk to either of these guys? the one that um we started a band with i did get in touch with him again maybe 15 years ago or so maybe a little longer and and we stayed in touch for a while and i've no, I think for the last, I don't know, eight or ten years, I haven't heard from him. Oh. Um, mm. But, 
you know, so I, so I had that experience of having friends close by that I could just, you know, walk down to either one's house. And, and I was the kind of kid that my parents always knew where I was. I always told them, you know, where I was, you know, I wasn't a Christian or anything, but I was basically a good kid, Mm -hmm. you know, told my parents where I was going, what I was doing. Um, You know, so they never really worried about me and, and I don't recall staying out super late, you know, or things like that. But so, yeah, I could, I could relate to that in the book with him just, you know, running around with all of his friends and until a certain time where he had to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was, what was your band called? Oh, we went through several names. Uh, the original name was Wire, and then I think it was Storm, and then it was Sunrise. Nice. My, I thought when I went to college that my friend and I were going to be rock and roll stars, and I was just getting a math degree to have something to fall back on in mm-hmm. case we failed as rock and roll stars. <laughs> that was honestly what I thought. Really? I yeah. honestly thought we were going to be famous. Yeah. I played I played bass and looking back we probably were terrible. <laughs> um and actually our drummer is still drumming for a band. Oh really? So someone made it. Well, I don't know about made it. Not a big band. <laughs> Not a big band, okay. but they uh-huh. play, you know, in Hastings and the surrounding area. Yeah. I don't know how far away they travel, probably not real far. Yeah. Um, Probably like local bars or whatever. Yeah. And my friend um, that I got in contact again with some years ago, he had a band with his family. His oh. He had two sons, one of whom was a drummer and one was a really fantastic guitar player. And then my friend played guitar and he sang some and his wife played bass. Um, and I would go, uh, listen to them when they played, like they, uh, played once at the Washington County fair. And whenever I would, whenever he would tell me, oh, we're playing here, we're playing there. If I was free, I would go and listen to them. And, um, usually there was one song in particular that they played that every once in a while he'd say, this is my friend my friend Bruce's favorite song and we'll play this for him and fun but yeah they played they played blues whereas when <clears throat> growing up in the band that we had we did a lot of uh Creedence Clearwater Revival oh yeah some yep. 50s stuff and a couple couple Rolling Stones and a few other things but yeah, but nice. it was fun yeah nice sounds fun um was it a garage band Basi- or was it basically <laughs> yeah we we practiced in my friend's basement. Okay. Uh, for the most part, um, I think once or twice we practiced at my house, but okay. usually it was at his basement because we could just leave everything set up there. Right. The biggest bit of work was just hauling our equipment around and oh yeah, setting it up and you know tearing it down and right. I'm sure it was a lot bigger of a production than the technology we have now. Like- yeah, because everything was cabled together and it just took a long time right no bluetooth amps or anything nope (laughs) those still aren't great though 
No, <laughs> I can't imagine that they would be. Yeah. Um, well, then I guess a, a, a question to ask is for each individual person here, how did how did the book make you feel? What what was the overall emotion you felt reading this book? We'll start with Bruce. Maybe I could describe it as feeling comfortable because mm. so many of the scenes felt familiar. Yeah. You know, even if I didn't experience them directly, they felt familiar. And just the <clears throat> feelings that that the stories, uh, the little vignettes brought to me, whether it was, you know, making me smile um, or making me get, and I don't know what it was that made me get all teary-eyed about the tennis shoes, but maybe it was just remembering that and that it was so vivid, you know, because it wasn't sad. It was a really, uh, there was a feeling of happiness in that story because he was so excited about the shoes and and the feelings they would give him uh, or the, the tension in the three women going to the movie theater, mm-hmm. um, the sadness of, the, of Mrs. Bentley who felt like she had to believe what the kids believed that she never really was a little kid, you know, mm-hmm. or even the, the sadness of the story between Bill Forrester and Mrs. Loomis, you know, that he was in love with a picture of her when she was young and yet she was way older than him mm-hmm. now. And yet they had this real nice relationship of just sitting and talking and uh, all that. So I don't know. Comfort, warm fuzzies uh, mm-hmm. in the story. It was just a, a pleasant, a pleasant book to read. Yeah. If I were to describe it in one word, I'd say sunlight. Because even though it describes some nights, it seemed like a very bright book, and uh, it seemed warm, like you were saying. Um, it was it was almost an inviting book. You know, it was, you know, you could think back on past memories and like oh I relate to that part or this part Mm -hmm. um and it was just a very kind of like find yourself in this book you know um so yeah it wasn't you know there was no stressful parts necessarily um but it was just kind of a I don't know I'd say smooth um open road with with sunlight and you know the days are there's more sunlight in the summer, you know, the days seem longer, but, um, it was just very bright and pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you guys kind of stole everything, but <laughs> I guess can't. for me, it would be comforting. Yeah. Comfort. I felt very comforted reading this book, even in describing the dark battlefield of, of the ravine and, and the lonely one and mm-hmm. and all these childhood terrors that one will go through. It, I mean, as an adult reading this book, there was a level of those fears are, are, are unrealistic or not something to be worried about mm-hmm. to then also some of these fears are genuine and some of them get worse the older you get. But just this 
human experience. I, I don't know. I've never read a book that laid out childhood so accurately and so well. I mean, even as someone who can't relate to the time period, I can relate to so many of the emotions mm-hmm. and so many of the thoughts and the feelings. Um, I mean, we were the we were the kids where it was like mom and dad needed your GPS location, you know, because we live in such a you know messed up world, and you locked your door and you didn't go outside without your parents, and but at the same time, we started to feel this this freedom and this independence maybe just a little older in life you know i remember me feeling free and feeling like douglas did in a summer was the first summer i got the first summer i had a license oh yeah because as someone who grew up in wisconsin all my friends were in minnesota so you had a 35 minute drive to go knock on your buddy's door but just the nights that we were out late driving different random parking lots and restaurants and parks and just running around sometimes spending hours doing absolutely nothing but together and just that that absolute joy of being with only people that you liked and that you enjoyed being around and even just enjoying their presence you weren't even i mean some i can't tell you how many times we got food and we sat on our the hoods of our cars for hours and just talked and ate and did stupid stuff and it was the best time, you know, you had the greatest time doing it. And Douglas just has the greatest time just running around doing random stuff with his buddies in this neighborhood and just the absolute joy of it. And then the question I had for you guys is, and Bruce, this is more for you with your age. I feel like Gabe hasn't hit it yet. For me growing up, and you know, having my own kids and experiencing bigger things with them, like holidays and vacations and um, special occasions. Was there ever a part in life where you got, let's just use a, a silly example. Let's use 4th of July. Did you ever have a 4th of July where the romanticism of 4th of July felt like it had left? And it's not particularly for the July, but holidays, special occasions, things where you felt like this isn't as magical as it used to be. I I can't think of a particular tradition, but I know that I've had experiences in life where something that we did either as a family or when I was growing up or whatever was really fun. And then you try to recreate that and it wasn't as fun when you recreated it. You know, it was like, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It was like, it almost had to be organic and just grow from, you know, Hey, we're goofing around and doing this and suddenly it turns into something fun but then when you try to recreate it some things just don't recreate uh, very well Um, I think I think there will come a time when 
Like I can't, there will come a time when I can't tolerate being on a roller coaster. Because mm -hmm. you love roller coasters. Yeah. And that'll be sad for me uh -huh. when I can't do that ride. Um, <clears throat> but I can't think of any particular family tradition where suddenly it wasn't fun anymore. I mean, some traditions just kind of fade away because time changes things. Mm -hmm. um, and you just kind of have to let those things go, you know. Um, <clears throat> I can't think of any that, you know, where we said, you know, we're just not going to do this anymore. Right. You know, um, just you go through different phases of your life and, and you can have different traditions within those phases. And sometimes, you know, something happens to change it. You know, like let's say you own a cabin and so you go to the cabin every summer and you have certain memories of things you do there and then, you know, you sell the cabin and, okay, now you don't have that to do. And so you find something else, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, yeah, you can remember going to the cabin and having all that fun, but then you just create new traditions and new things to do uh, that are fun. So, But I can't remember anything where all of a sudden the mystique just disappeared. I can't gotcha. Can't think I think of anything. The reason I brought it up is this book makes you feel a lot of just like, oh, you know, just a lot of emotion about events, mm -hmm. about time periods. And I think it's just been strange for me and Amanda as we, you know, go through different family things um, and events and get togethers and we'll reminisce about, you know, oh, this year this happened and this year this happened and and it just, we, we both kind of came together once and we were just like, it almost seems like as we get older, some of these things get a lot less magical. Um, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with family moving away and less people coming to things. and um, But I kind of just, I, it bothered me for a while because it was like three things in a row where we were just like, that wasn't what I thought it would be. That wasn't what I remembered it would be. And I think it's just, I mean, reading this book again, it was just kind of, my filters are changing. Mm -hmm. You know, how I look at things are changing. Unfortunately, life just, I mean, life doesn't get easier the older you get. It just gets tougher. And that's, it's, that's not to complain. That's not to whine. That's just reality. And you need to, you need to get over it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you can still, you still owe it to yourself and others to find joy in that period of life. And there's still amazing things that come with each thing. But I think, unfortunately, as we get older, and maybe this is just me, I see a lot more of the sad and the, and the unfortunate and uncomfortable parts of life. And they, they have little tints into how I view everything. And, you know, I mean, when you were a kid going to family get-togethers, you didn't know all the family drama. I mean, you didn't know all the issues going on between whose uncle and whose aunt and who was fighting and who wasn't talking to who. 
And then as an adult, you start to get clued in on those things and you go to these events and you're like, well, I know this is going on and that is going on. And meanwhile, you see all the other little kids just interacting like like you used to running wild and having fun and not another care in the world. And I think I think that's the conclusion I came to is it's just you have more responsibilities and there are other things to be thinking about as an adult. And sometimes, fortunately, in our fallen world, that can that can affect how you how you feel and how you experience different mm-hmm. different opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we need to um you know just enjoy people for who they are and not not what their politics are or what their mm-hmm. thoughts on this or that thing yeah. are but just find common ground and appreciate who they are right yeah you can't let what you've heard tint your view on someone you gotta you know even maybe talk to them about it if it's something that's really bothering you but Mm -hmm. you know our goal you know as christians is to live at peace with everyone you know right um not to know the latest gossip or how that changes your view on someone it's to you know settle the matter if there's a dispute and if there's not, you know, enjoy their company and mm-hmm. get to know them a little more. But, mm-hmm. uh, well, as much as I have loved this podcast, we have quite far surpassed the hour mark, which <laughs> is where we usually like to keep things. Um, so if there's any closing remarks, um, now would be the time to make them. Okay. Well, you ahead. asked for a one-sentence summary of the book. Yeah, let's hear it. This is just mine. Very simplistic. A Summer Through the Eyes of Douglas Balding. And that's my summary. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Gabe, you got one? Um, I don't have one written down, but I would say a spark for one's own memory. Because it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like you start to remember things as you read. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, as as they probably wouldn't if you hadn't read this book. You know, it's like you don't just think back to your summer as a 12-year-old. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a little bit of spark to get you going. Yeah. I cheated, so I hope that's okay. Sure. But this this sentence just struck out to me the whole time, and I think it describes the book. A good night's sleep or a 10-minute brawl or a a 10-minute ball or a pint of chocolate ice cream, all three together is good medicine. Mm-hmm. And That's I think it, it it's it encapsulate encapsulates the book. Yeah, I mean, all three of those things are great, greatly enjoyed throughout the book. And yeah, just the simple. I mean, it, pretty much all of that, except for chocolate ice cream, which is dirt cheap, is free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and if you can find joy in two free things and a dollar a pint chocolate ice cream, you're doing life right. Yeah, vanilla for me. Vanilla, yeah. yeah. I, yeah, like vanilla bean. I, like I would take That's one. only if I'm getting adventurous. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Or French vanilla if you're feeling, you know, exotic. Yeah. Exactly. Gotcha. Well, Bruce, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, this has been a blast. Yes, we've enjoyed your company and conversation um, a lot. But we encourage our listeners, if you haven't read this book, we didn't give everything away. We just gave our, our favorite moments away. So read Dandelion Wine because it is a spark for one's own memory uh, for lack of better words um, 
but yeah thank you for joining us on the june topics podcast we'll be announcing our next uh lit lit minute read for next month uh within the week yes very soon um and have a great weekend